0: Section 21 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Kanan. Morning 3, Part 5. One evening one of their neighbors— a friend of his grandfather, Fisher, the furniture dealer, came in to smoke and chat with Melchior after dinner, as he often did. Jean Christophe, in torment, was going up to his room after waiting for the postman to pass, when a word made him tremble. Fischer said that next day he had to go early in the morning to the Carrichs to hang up the curtains. Jean Christophe stopped dead and asked, "'Have they returned?' "'You, Ag, you know that as well as I do.' said old fisher roguishly fine weather they came back the day before yesterday jean christophe heard no more he left the room and got ready to go out his mother who for some time had secretly been watching him without his knowing it followed him into the lobby and asked him timidly where he was going he made no answer and went out he was hurt he ran to the carracks house it was nine o'clock in the evening They were both in the drawing-room, and did not appear to be surprised to see him. They said, "'Good evening,' quietly. Minna was busy writing, and held out her hand over the table and went on with her letter, vaguely asking him for his news. She asked him to forgive her discourtesy, and pretended to be listening to what he said, but she interrupted him to ask something of her mother— He had prepared touching words concerning all that he had suffered during her absence. He could hardly summon a few words. No one was interested in them, and he had not the heart to go on. It all rang so false. When Minna had finished her letter she took up some work, and, sitting a little away from him, began to tell him about her travels. She talked about the pleasant weeks she had spent riding on horseback, country-house life interesting society. She got excited gradually, and made allusions to events and people whom Jean-Christophe did not know, and the memory of them made her mother and herself laugh. Jean-Christophe felt that he was a stranger during the story. He did not know how to take it, and laughed awkwardly. He never took his eyes from Minna's face, beseeching her to look at him, imploring her to throw him a glance for alms. But when she did look at him, which was not often for she addressed herself more to her mother than to him her eyes like her voice were cold and indifferent was she so constrained because of her mother or was it that he did not understand he wished to speak to her alone but frau von Kerrich never left them for a moment he tried to bring the conversation round to some subject interesting to himself he spoke of his work and his plans He was dimly conscious that Minna was evading him, and instinctively he tried to interest her in himself. Indeed, she seemed to listen attentively enough. She broke in upon his narrative with various interjections, which were never very apt, but always seemed to be full of interest. But just as he was beginning to hope once more, carried off his feet by one of her charming smiles, he saw Minna put her little hand to her lips and yawn. He broke off short. She saw that and asked his pardon amiably, saying that she was tired. He got up, thinking that they would persuade him to stay, but they said nothing. He spun out his good-bye and waited for a word to ask him to come again next day. There was no suggestion of it. He had to go. Minna did not take him to the door. She held out her hand to him, an indifferent hand that drooped limply in his and he took his leave of them in the middle of the room he went home with terror in his heart of the minna of two months before of his beloved minna nothing was left what had happened what had become of her for a poor boy who has never yet experienced the continual change the complete disappearance and the absolute renovation of living souls of which the majority are not so much souls as collections of souls in succession changing and dying away continually the simple truth was too cruel for him to be able to believe it he rejected the idea of it in terror and tried to persuade himself that he had not been able to see properly and that minna was just the same he decided to go again to the house next morning and to talk to her at all costs he did not sleep through the night he counted one after another the chimes of the clock from one o'clock on he was rambling round the kerricks house he entered it as soon as he could he did not see minna but frau von Kerik. always busy and an early riser she was watering the pots of flowers on the veranda she gave a mocking cry when she saw jean christophe ah she said it is you. I am glad you have come. I have something to talk to you about. Wait a moment. She went in for a moment, to put down her watering-can and to dry her hands, and came back with a little smile as she saw Jean Christophe's discomfiture. He was conscious of the approach of disaster. Come into the garden, she said. We shall be quieter. In the garden that was full still of his love, he followed Frau von Kerich. She did not hasten to speak, and enjoyed the boy's uneasiness. "'Let us sit here,' she said at last. They were sitting on the seat in the place where Minna had held up her lips to him on the eve of her departure. "'I think you know what is the matter,' said Frau von Karich, looking serious so as to complete his confusion. "'I should never have thought it of you, Jean Christophe. I thought you a serious boy. I had every confidence in you.' I should never have thought that you would abuse it to try and turn my daughter's head. She was in your keeping. You ought to have shown respect for her, respect for me, respect for yourself. There was a light irony in her accents. Frau Van Kerich attached not the least importance to this childish love affair, but Jean Christophe was not conscious of it, and her reproaches, which he took, as he took everything, tragically, went to his heart. "'But, madam, but, madam,' he stammered, with tears in his eyes, "'I have never abused your confidence. Please do not think that. I am not a bad man, that I swear. I love Fräulein Minna. I love her with all my soul, and I wish to marry her.' Frau von Kerach smiled. "'No, my poor boy.' she said, with that kindly smile in which was so much disdain, as at last he was to understand. No, it is impossible. It is just a childish folly. Why? Why? he asked. He took her hands, not believing that she could be speaking seriously, and almost reassured by the new softness in her voice. She smiled still, and said, Because— he insisted with ironical deliberation she did not take him altogether seriously she told him that he had no fortune that minna had different tastes he protested that that made no difference that he would be rich famous that he would win honours money all that minna could desire frau von karich looked sceptical she was amused by his self-confidence and only shook her head by way of saying no "'but he stuck to it.' "'No, Jean Christophe,' she said firmly. "'No, it is not worth arguing. "'It is impossible. "'It is not only a question of money. "'So many things. "'The position—' "'She had no need to finish. "'That was a needle that pierced to his very marrow. "'His eyes were opened. "'He saw the irony of the friendly smile. "'He saw the coldness of the kindly look.' he understood suddenly what it was that separated him from this woman whom he loved as a son this woman who seemed to treat him like a mother he was conscious of all that was patronizing and disdainful in her affection he got up he was pale frau von kerich went on talking to him in her caressing voice but it was the end he heard no more the music of the words he perceived under every word the falseness of that elegant soul. He could not answer a word. He went. Everything about him was going round and round. When he regained his room, he flung himself on his bed and gave way to a fit of anger and injured pride, just as he used to do when he was a little boy. He bit his pillow. He crammed his handkerchief into his mouth so that no one should hear him crying. He hated Frau von Kerich. He hated Minna. He despised them mightily. It seemed to him that he had been insulted, and he trembled with shame and rage. He had to reply, to take immediate action. If he could not avenge himself, he would die. He got up and wrote an idiotically violent letter. Madam, I do not know if, as you say, you have been deceived in me. But I do know that I have been cruelly deceived in you. I thought that you were my friends. You said so, you pretended to be so, and I loved you more than my life. I see now that it was all a lie, that your affection for me was only a sham. You made use of me. I amused you, provided you with entertainment, made music for you. I was your servant, your servant, that I am not. I am no man's servant. You have made me feel cruelly that I had no right to love your daughter. Nothing in the world can prevent my heart from loving where it loves, and if I am not your equal in rank, I am as noble as you. It is the heart that ennobles a man. If I am not a count, I have perhaps more honour than many counts, lackey or count, when a man insults me, I despise him. I despise as much any one who pretends to be noble and is not noble of soul farewell you have mistaken me you have deceived me i detest you he who in spite of you loves and will love till death fraulein Minna, because she is his and nothing can take her from him hardly had he thrown his letter into the box than he was filled with terror at what he had done he tried not to think of it but certain phrases cropped up in his memory He was in a cold sweat, as he thought of Frau von Kerich reading those enormities. At first he was upheld by his very despair, but next day he saw that his letter could only bring about a final separation from Minna, and that seemed to him the direst of misfortunes. He still hoped that Frau von Kerich, who knew his violent fits, would not take it seriously, that she would only reprimand him severely, and, who knows, that she would be touched, perhaps, by the sincerity of his passion. One word, and he would have thrown himself at her feet. He waited for five days. Then came a letter. She said, Dear sir, since, as you say, there has been a misunderstanding between us, it would be wise not any further to prolong it. I should be very sorry to force upon you a relationship which has become painful to you. You will think it natural, therefore, that we should break it off i hope that you will in time to come have no lack of other friends who will be able to appreciate you as you wish to be appreciated i have no doubt as to your future and from a distance shall with sympathy follow your progress in your musical career kind regards josepha von Karich. the most bitter reproaches would have been less cruel jean christophe saw that he was lost it is possible to reply to an unjust accusation but what is to be done against the negativeness of such polite indifference he raged against it he thought that he would never see minna again and he could not bear it he felt how little all the pride in the world weighs against a little love he forgot his dignity he became cowardly he wrote more letters in which he implored forgiveness they were no less stupid Than the letter in which he had railed against her they evoked no response and everything was said he nearly died of it he thought of killing himself he thought of murder at least he imagined that he thought of it he was possessed by incendiary and murderous desires people have little idea of the paroxysm of love or hate which sometimes devours the hearts of children it was the most terrible crisis of his childhood it ended his childhood it stiffened his will but it came near to breaking it forever he found life impossible he would sit for hours with his elbows on the window sill looking down into the courtyard and dreaming as he used to when he was a little boy of some means of escaping from the torture of life when it became too great the remedy was there under his eyes immediate immediate how could one know perhaps after hours, centuries, horrible sufferings. But so utter was his childish despair that he let himself be carried away by the giddy round of such thoughts. Louisa saw that he was suffering. She could not gauge exactly what was happening to him, but her instinct gave her a dim warning of danger. She tried to approach her son, to discover his sorrow so as to console him but the poor woman had lost the habit of talking intimately to Jean-Christophe. For many years he had kept his thoughts to himself, and she had been too much taken up by the material cares of life to find time to discover them or divine them. Now that she would so gladly have come to his aid, she knew not what to do. She hovered about him like a soul in torment. She would gladly have found words to bring him comfort, and she dared not speak for fear of irritating him and in spite of all her care she did irritate him by her every gesture and by her very presence for she was not very adroit and he was not very indulgent and yet he loved her they loved each other but so little is needed to part two creatures who are dear to each other and love each other with all their hearts a too violent expression an awkward gesture a harmless twitching of an eye or a nose a trick of eating walking or laughing a physical constraint which is beyond analysis you say that these things are nothing and yet they are all the world often they are enough to keep a mother and a son a brother and a brother a friend and a friend who live in proximity to each other forever strangers to each other jean christophe did not find in his mother's grief a sufficient prop in the crisis through which he was passing besides what is the affection of others to the egoism of passion preoccupied with itself one night when his family were sleeping and he was sitting by his desk not thinking or moving he was engulfed in his perilous ideas when a sound of footsteps resounded down the little silent street And a knock on the door brought him from his stupor there was a murmuring of thick voices he remembered that his father had not come in and he thought angrily that they were bringing him back drunk as they had done a week or two before when they had found him lying in the street for Melchior had abandoned all restraint and was more and more the victim of his vice though his athletic health seemed not in the least to suffer from an excess and a recklessness which would have killed any other man. He ate enough for four, drank until he dropped, passed whole nights out of doors in icy rain, was knocked down and stunned in brawls, and would get up again next day with his rowdy gaiety, wanting everybody about him to be gay, too. Louisa, hurrying up, rushed to open the door jean christophe who had not budged stopped his ears so as not to hear melchior's vicious voice and the tittering comments of the neighbors suddenly a strange terror seized him for no reason he began to tremble with his face hidden in his hands and on the instant a piercing cry made him raise his head he rushed to the door in the midst of a group of men talking in low voices in the dark passage lit only by the flickering light of a lantern lying just as his grandfather had done on a stretcher was a body dripping with water motionless louisa was clinging to it and sobbing they had just found melchior drowned in the mill-race jean christophe gave a cry everything else vanished all his other sorrows were swept aside he threw himself on his father's body by louise's side and they wept together seated by the bedside watching melchior's last sleep on whose face was now a severe and solemn expression he felt the dark peace of death enter into his soul his childish passion was gone from him like a fit of fever the icy breath of the grave had taken it all away minna his pride his love and himself alas what misery how small everything showed by the side of this reality the only reality death was it worth while to suffer so much to desire so much to be so much put about to come in the end to that he watched his father's sleep and he was filled with an infinite pity he remembered the smallest of his acts of kindness and tenderness for with all his faults melchior was not bad there was much good in him he loved his family he was honest he had a little of the uncompromising probity of the crafts which in all questions of morality and honour suffered no discussion and never would admit the least of those small moral impurities which so many people in society regard not altogether, as false. He was brave, and whenever there was any danger, faced it with a sort of enjoyment. If he was extravagant himself, he was so for others too. He could not bear anybody to be sad, and very gladly gave away all that belonged to him, and did not belong to him, to the poor devils he met by the wayside. All his qualities appeared to Jean Christophe now, and he invented some of them, or exaggerated them. It seemed to him that he had misunderstood his father. He reproached himself with not having loved him enough. He saw him as broken by life. He thought he heard that unhappy soul, drifting, too weak to struggle, crying out for the life so uselessly lost. He heard that lamentable entreaty that had so cut him to the heart one day. Jean Christophe! Do not despise me. And he was overwhelmed by remorse. He threw himself on the bed and kissed the dead face and wept. And as he had done that day, he said again, Dear father, I do not despise you. I love you. Forgive me. But that piteous entreaty was not appeased and went on. Do not despise me. Do not despise me. And suddenly Jean-Christophe saw himself lying in the place of the dead man. He heard the terrible words coming from his own lips. He felt weighing on his heart the despair of a useless life, irreparably lost. And he thought in terror, Ah! Everything, all the suffering, all the misery in the world, rather than come to that. How near he had been to it! had he not all but yielded to the temptation to snap off his life himself cowardly to escape his sorrow as if all the sorrows all betrayals were not childish griefs beside the torture and the crime of self-betrayal denial of faith of self-contempt in death he saw that life was a battle without armistice without mercy in which he who wishes to be a man worthy of the name of a man must forever fight against whole armies of invisible enemies, against the murderous forces of nature, uneasy desires, dark thoughts, treacherously leading him to degradation and destruction. He saw that he had been on the point of falling into the trap. He saw that happiness and love were only the friends of a moment to lead the heart to disarm and abdicate. AND THE LITTLE PURITAN OF FIFTEEN HEARD THE VOICE OF HIS GOD. GO, GO, AND NEVER REST. BUT WHITHER, LORD, SHALL I GO? WHATSOEVER I DO, WHITHERSOEVER I GO, IS NOT THE END ALWAYS THE SAME? IS NOT THE END OF ALL THINGS IN THAT? GO ON TO DEATH, YOU WHO MUST DIE. GO AND SUFFER, YOU WHO MUST SUFFER. You do not live to be happy. You live to fulfill my law. Suffer, die. But be what you must be, a man. End of section 21